Chapter Fifty One of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey. Love's Aftermath. I seek no copy now of life's first half. Leave here the pages with long musing curled, and write me new my future's epigraph, new angel mine, unhoped for in the world. Mrs. Browning. Neither of them spoke for some minutes. Perhaps Michael's strong emotion felt the need of silence. But presently he said in a voice that thrilled her with its tenderness, Audrey, you must never be afraid of me again. I shall never need to be afraid again, she returned softly. Oh, Michael, if you only knew how dreadful it has been all the week, I would not go through it again for worlds. Has it been so bad as that? In his old rallying tone, for he saw how greatly she was moved. You have no idea how bad it was. I felt that I had done something very bold and unmaidenly in writing that postscript to father's letter. I had longed for your return, but after that I began to dread it. I was so afraid of what you must think of me. I think you have known my opinion on that subject for a great many years, he replied gently. If you had not been different from other girls, if you had not been immeasurably above them all in my eyes, I would never have asked you to send me that message. I knew I could rely on your perfect truth, and you have not disappointed me. This delicate flattery soothed her and appeased her sensitiveness. Michael watched her for a moment. Then he drew up a chair to the fire in his old way. You must sit there and talk to me for a little while, he said quietly. And as she looked at him rather doubtfully and suggested that her mother would be wondering at their absence, he negatived the idea at once. By this time your father will have told her everything. He's been in my confidence all these months. No, they will not want us. And I have not seen you yet. At least, you have not seen me. I am quite sure of that. And as Audrey's dimples came into play at this remark, he very nearly made her feel shy again by saying, You have no idea how lovely you have grown, Audrey. Has anyone told you so, I wonder? No, of course not. Who do you think would talk such nonsense to me? but her blush made him still more certain of the fact. At any rate, it is the dearest face in the world to me, he went on still more earnestly. Audrey, I think even if you had not written those three little words, I must still have come home. I could not have stayed away from you any longer. If I had only known that, I might have spared myself a great deal of pain, she replied quickly. But they told me that you were going to Greece and the Holy Land, and Mr. Abercrombie had come back alone, and I thought, I thought that I should never see you again. I began to have the same sort of feeling myself, and then I was so tired of waiting. How long have I wanted you, Audrey? Ten or twelve years, at least. I begin to think that there never was such a fellow for constancy. Ten or twelve years? What can you mean, Michael? But she knew well enough what he meant. Only she was woman enough to love to hear him say it. Oh, it was quite twelve years ago. I can remember the occasion quite well. You were in a short white frock, and you had your hair streaming over your shoulders. You were such a pretty little girl, Audrey. I admired you far more than I admired Gage, with all her regular features. Oh, what nonsense, Michael. Nonsense. You will tell me next that you do not remember asking me to give you a kiss. I want to kiss you, Mike, because you are so nice and smart. Do you think I shall ever forget that? I lost my heart to you then. You must not expect me to remember those things. She returned, blushing like a rose. No, darling, I suppose not. You are only a child then. But all the same, these memories are very sweet to me. 
You have been my one and only love, and you know that now. Oh, Michael! And now the grey eyes filled with tears, for these words sounded like a reproach to her. You must not misunderstand me, he returned, shocked at her evident misconception of his words. Do you think that I begrudged the love you gave that poor fellow? Some day, when you are my wife, I will tell you all I think on this subject, but not now, not to-night, of all nights, when I know and feel, for the first time, that my treasure is in my own keeping. And then he stopped, and in rather an agitated voice, begged her that he might not see tears in her dear eyes to-night. I did not mean to be foolish, she returned in a low voice, only when I think of all you have suffered, and how patient you have been, and how beautifully you bore it all for our sakes. I feel as though I should never make up to you for all you have gone through. Michael, and here her look was a little wistful, are you sure that I shall never disappoint you, that what I have to give will content you? But his answer fully satisfied her on this point. He was more than content, he said. He needed no assurances of her affection. He would never need them. The first look at her face had told him all he wanted to know. I think I can read your very thoughts, Audrey, that I know you better than you know yourself. And as Michael said this, there was a smile upon his face that seemed to baffle her, a smile so penetrating and sweet that it lingered in her memory long afterwards. And a few minutes later Michael proved the truth of his words. He was showing her the ring that he had chosen, a half-hoop of diamonds of the finest water, and their luster and brilliancy almost dazzled Audrey. I remember your love for diamonds, he said as he took her hand. But she did not answer him. She was looking rather sadly at a little gold ring she had always worn. Do not take it off, he said hastily as he read the tender reluctance in her face. Dear Audrey, why should not my diamonds keep company with his ring? And as her eyes expressed her gratitude, he slipped the brilliant ring into its place. You will soon have to make way for another. The diamonds will make a capital guard. But though he evidently expected an answer to this, Audrey made no response, except to remark on the lateness of the hour, and then Michael did consent to adjourn to the drawing-room. They were eagerly expecting, heartily welcomed, and as her father folded her in his arms with a murmured blessing, and she received her mother's tearful congratulations, Audrey felt how truly they appreciated her choice. On this occasion there were no drawbacks, no whispered fear of what Geraldine and her husband might say. Mrs. Ross begged that she might be allowed to carry the good news to Hillside. They were coming up to dinner, and she thought it was due to them that they should be prepared beforehand. And as everyone assented to this, Mrs. Ross started early the next morning on her delightful embassage. But she had miscalculated the amount of pleasure that her news would impart. Geraldine cried with joy when she heard the news, and nothing would satisfy her except to put on her bonnet and walk back with her mother to Woodcott. She interrupted a delightful tete-a-tete between the lovers. Not that either of them minded, for as Michael sensibly remarked, he expected that they would have plenty of tete-a-tetes in their life, and Audrey was sufficiently fond of her sister to welcome her under any circumstances. How did you think I could wait until the evening? she said as she threw her arms round Audrey. Oh, my darling, do you know how glad I am about this, and to think that no one ever imagined it would be Michael? And then, as he gave her a brotherly kiss, and begged that he too might be congratulated, she continued earnestly. Yes, indeed, and we have all been as blind and stupid as possible, and yet when one comes to think of it, you and Audrey are cut out for each other, 
I was afraid you might say something about the disparity in our ages, five and twenty and forty, and actually I have some grey hairs already, Gage. Nonsense, he returned indignantly. I never saw you look younger and better in your life, and as for disparity, as you call it, isn't it just the same between Percival and myself? And can any couple be happier? If you are only as good to Audrey as Percival is to me, she will be the happiest woman in the world. It was a pity Mr. Harcourt could not see his wife as she made the speech, for she looked so lovely in her matronly dignity that Michael and Audrey exchanged an admiring glance, but the climax of their success was felt to be reached when Harcourt arrived that evening. You have done the best day's work that ever you did in your life when you said yes to Burnett, was his first speech to Audrey, and then he had turned very red and wrung her hand with such violence that it throbbed with pain. I think you ought to give her a kiss, Percy, suggested his wife a little mischievously, for it was well known that Mr. Harcourt objected to any such demonstration, except to his own wife. No, thank you, returned Audrey, stepping back. I am quite sure of Percival's sympathy without putting it to such a painful proof. I shall kiss Audrey on her wedding day, replied Mr. Harcourt solemnly. That is, if her husband will permit me, with a bow to Michael. But this remark drove his sister-in-law to the other side of the room, so that she lost a certain straightforward and complimentary speech that gave a great deal of pleasure to Michael, and which he never could be induced to repeat to her. No one could doubt Audrey's happiness after the first few days of strangeness had worn off, and she had grown used to her new position as Michael's fiancée. Michael had been very careful not to scare her at first. He had no wish to bring back the shyness that made their first evening such a misery to them both, and his forbearance was rewarded when he saw the old frankness and joyousness return, and Audrey became her own sweet self again. Michael was an ardent lover, but he was not an exacting one. Audrey could have had as much freedom as she needed during their brief engagement, but she had ceased to desire such freedom. She remembered sometimes with faint, unavoidable regret that Cyril's demonstrativeness had at times worried her, but she had no such feeling with Michael. When he left her for a few days to complete the purchase of a pretty little property he had secured for their future home in one of the loveliest spots in Surrey, she was as restless during his absence as ever Geraldine had been. Michael was surprised to find how she had missed him and how overjoyed she was at his return, but he never told her so, or ever alluded to the mistake that had doomed them both to such misery. My innocent darling, how could she know that I loved her, and I never told her so? It was I who would have been to blame if she had married Cyril. God grant that in that case she might never have found out her mistake, but I do not know. She would always have cared too much for Michael, and he would have found it out in time but he kept such thoughts to himself. Audrey had no objection to offer when Michael pleaded that they should be married early in August. He had waited long enough, she knew, and there was nothing to gain by waiting. But she had a long talk with her mother and Geraldine about Molly, whom she still regarded as a special protégé. Michael has Kester, she suggested, so I dare say he will not mind Molly sharing our home. You will make a great mistake if you ask him any such question returned Geraldine in her practical, matter-of-fact way. Kester will be at Oxford, and during the long vacation he will join some reading party or other. Michael told me so, and Molly would want a home all the year round. Why do you not leave her at Woodcott? 
Mother will be dreadfully dull without you at first, and of course I cannot always be with her. You are very fond of Molly, are you not, Mother? She is a dear, good child, and I should love to have her with me, was Mrs. Russet's reply. That is a clever thought of yours, my love, and Michael certainly will want his wife to himself. Men always do. If you really think so, Mother, and if Molly does not mind, she shall stay at Woodcot, was Audrey's reply. And when Molly was consulted, she proved quite willing to do as they all wished. Of course, dear Mrs. Ross will be dull, and I know I should only be in Captain Burnett's way, argued Molly a little tearfully. I knew that from the first. I shall miss you dreadfully, Audrey. No one will ever take your place, but I shall feel as though I were helping you somehow. Yes, and then you will pay me long visits, Molly, and of course Micah will often bring me to see Mother. And this charming prospect, and the promise that she should be Audrey's bridesmaid, speedily consoled Molly. Michael had stipulated that their honeymoon should be spent in Scotland, and to Audrey's amusement, Bramer was the place he finally selected, and he would have the very cottage, or other cottages, that Dr. Ross had taken for his family. We can shut up some of the rooms, and only use as many as we want, he said when Mrs. Ross had complained of the roominess. We are rich people and can afford it, and as Crawford is to be Audrey's maid, she can come with us and see that things are comfortable. Do you remember that sitting room, Audrey, and the horsehair sofa, and the ruin berries, and heather in the big china jars? By the by, you must have a grey tweed dress and a deerstalker cap, and look as you used to look, and there is a little bridge where Gage and I used to meet you all when you had had a day's outing on the moors. Shall you not love to go there again, Audrey? And in answer, Audrey said, Yes, rather demurely. But she was not demure at all when two months afterwards she sat on the little bridge in the sunset, watching the very same ducks dibble with their yellow bills in the brook that trickled so musically over the stones, while Michael stood beside her, lazily throwing in pebbles for Booty's amusement. On the contrary, she was laughing and talking with a great deal of animation, and, strange to say, she wore the grey tweed, and the deerstalker cap was on her bright brown hair. We have had such a delicious day, she was saying. I think there is nothing after all like a Scotch moor. Do look at those ducks, Michael, how angry they are with booty, and how ridiculous they look waddling over those wet stones. I was thinking of something else, he replied, and his tone made Audrey look up rather quickly. Do you remember your tirade on the subject of single blessedness, my Lady Bountiful, and how freedom outbalanced all the delights of wedded bliss? I recollect we were on the moors then, and Kester was with us, and I took out my pocket-book and wrote down the date. Well, I will be magnanimous and not ask an awkward question. Six weeks of madded life is not such a long time after all. But she interrupted him with such impatience. Michael, how can you recall such nonsense? But of course you are only doing it to tease me, as though I were not much happier than I was then. Are you really happier, Audrey? Really and truly, my darling? Oh, Michael, what a question. Am I not your wife? Is that not answer enough? Do you think I would change places with any other woman in the world, or even with my old self? And as he looked at her bright face, he knew that she was speaking the truth, and that Audrey Burnett so loved and reverenced her husband that she was likely to be a happier woman than Audrey Ross had been. 